Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Since Ascension Sunday, we have been in a short series of sermons from the book of Acts. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at one of the most well-known stories, not just in the book of Acts, but in all of Scripture. We're going to look at Paul's encounter with the risen Jesus on the road outside of Damascus. So I'm going to read from Acts 9 for us, verses 1 through 19, and you can follow along in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, uh, or you can just listen as I read from Acts 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang those ancient words where we said that we are turning unfilled to you again. And we know that that's true uh, when we sing those words. And so we ask that you would fill us. And we ask that for those of us here this morning who don't feel that hunger and who don't feel that need, that you would awaken that in us. And we would find everything we need in the grace of Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, I want to tell you that my uh, first date with Allison, my wife, um, My first date with her way back in the winter of 1992 uh, did not go that well. Uh, To be clear, I thought it went really well. (laughs) 
I thought it was a really great first date. And in retrospect, I'm guessing that I thought that because I didn't say anything too stupid during the date. But that brings me to Allison's experience of our first date. She was apparently bored out of her mind on this date. Uh, it was early February, but it was pretty mild out, so we decided that we would just get some coffee and go for a walk in the city and talk. Uh, so for our coffee, we went to this exciting new place that was just starting to make a name for itself in Chicago. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Starbucks. We got our coffee there, and we went out into the night. Now, I don't really remember what it was that we talked about. I just know that we walked and talked for two or three hours, and it felt pretty great to me. But Allison remembers it very differently. She says that we talked about uh, summer jobs, that we talked a little bit about our families, and that we talked a lot about my friends. Um, <clears throat> so when I got back to my dorm, I told all of those aforementioned friends that I had a really great date and that I was going to ask her out again. Allison got back to her dorm and she told all of her friends that it was a really boring date, two or three hours of her life that I'm guessing she felt like she could never get back. And, you know, that she could never in a million years imagine that I was going to ask her out again because I had to know how bad it was, but that if I did, she would say no. And yet here we are. <laughs> and there she is. Next month we will celebrate our 20th anniversary. So obviously, when I called her again, which, by the way, that's how people used to do it back in those days. We used to call people on the phone. Um, when I called her, Allison made what was apparently an inexplicable and inscrutable and confusing choice. Instead of saying no, she said yes. I'm sure her friends were really confused to hear that. And in fact, I know that Allison herself was confused by this move. And it wasn't until months and months later that she finally admitted to me why she said yes for that second time. My phone call had woke her up from a nap. <laughs> so when she picked up the phone, she was disoriented and confused. And she told me yes before she had a chance to really wake up. <laughs> A guy will take what he can get, you know? And I bring this up because Jesus makes what appears to be a completely inscrutable and confusing choice in that story that we just read and heard together. And Ananias, who appears only here in the New Testament, this guy named Ananias is the one who points it out. It's like he said, what's that you said, Jesus? It, it must be my trick ear. It sounded like you told me I was supposed to go and find Saul of Tarsus. Don't you mean that I'm supposed to, to hide from Saul of Tarsus? I mean, he is the guy who is out to stamp out people like me. He is all threats and murder against your church, Jesus. And he's here under the authority of the high priest to drag people like me back to Jerusalem and lock us up. And that's when Jesus says the inscrutable thing, go, Ananias, it's okay. Because he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name out into the whole wide world. The one most passionate about stamping out my name is the one who will now take my name into the whole world. And I just want to say that inscrutable choices like this one, they are always at the heart of the story of God and his world. 
And that is not just really good news for Saul. It's the best thing that we've ever heard, too. So as first lines go to start a story, the one that Luke uses to start the story is about as intriguing as it gets. He says, Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. This is a man, make no mistake about it, with really bad intentions. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Saul before this encounter on the road, um, but everything that we do know reveals that he was a bad guy. The first time that we ever hear Saul's name is in connection with the stoning of a Christian named Stephen. Luke tells us that story in Acts chapter 8, and the way that he tells us that story is so incredibly compelling. Now, Saul is there. He's not the one throwing rocks that day, but he is the one who is holding the coats of all the people who are throwing rocks and stoning Stephen. And with his last breath, Stephen says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Right? With his last breath, he asked God to show mercy to his executioners. It is so beautiful and so compelling. And then the next line, the very next line in the story kind of makes your blood run cold. Luke says... Saul approved of his execution. Saul was glad he was dead. Something gets ignited in Saul that day. All of the formative streams of his life come together in that moment, and he is certain that he knows what he should be doing from that day forward. Luke says that Saul starts ravaging the church dragging women and men off to prison. What Saul figures is, I'm going to reproduce what happened to Stephen again and again and again and again until every last one of these followers of Jesus are wiped off of the face of this planet. He is on the leading edge of what Luke calls a great persecution of the church. And here's the thing about Saul. It's not like he was some mindless street thug. Right? We know from other sources and we know from his own writing that he is incredibly educated and supremely intelligent and that he's deeply scripturally literate. We know that he is a strict Pharisee. The Pharisees were like this pressure group that had enormous socio-political influence in his day. Saul is this ultra-nationalist of the most fanatical kind, and he is powerful, and he is compelling. He's the kind of person who has the savvy and the influence to get things done, and he did. He had gone to the high priest, and he had asked for these letters of extradition to the synagogues at Damascus so he could go there and raid the synagogues and capture everyone there who said they followed Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them in jail while they await trial, presumably on blasphemy charges. So Saul and his hit squad take their show on the road. Damascus was about 150 miles from Jerusalem. It might have taken about a week to get there. And somewhere on that dusty road, right as they are nearing the end of their journey, Saul meets his maker. Luke says that a blinding light from heaven shone on Saul, causing him to fall to the ground. And then comes that voice that must have made his skin crawl. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, he doesn't even know how to begin to answer that question. But I think that he is pretty aware of the broad strokes of what is happening to him in that moment. He's familiar enough with the Old Testament. He's read stories like this enough. He knows how this works. 
He knows this light and this voice. He knows enough to know that this is a theophany, that this is God on the ground in some way visiting him. And so he asks, who are you, Lord? And you know, it's hard to imagine the shock and the horror and the confusion that Saul must have felt when he heard the answer. I am Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. I'm the one you're out to get. It's me. So I just want to take a couple of minutes to talk about three of the many things that flowed out of that moment. And first is probably the most obvious one. And that is that Saul realizes in that moment that he has been really, really wrong about Jesus. Which is another way of saying that he has got a lot to learn about both this God that he thinks he has been jealous for his whole life and the world that he is living in. Saul realizes that Jesus is not dead. Somehow he is not dead. I mean, up until that moment, Saul was absolutely convinced that crucifixion was exactly the right judgment for a pretender like Jesus. But somehow he is alive, and that means Paul knows in an instant, even if he doesn't know how, even if he doesn't know how it could possibly be worked out, Paul knows in that instant that he is not living in the world that he thought he was living in. He is living in a new world, a new creation, and just as profoundly and just as shockingly, It means that Jesus is not who Saul thought Jesus was. Years later, he writes to some friends at the church in Corinth. And I don't doubt for a minute that it was this moment on the road that he was thinking about when he wrote this to his friends. He wrote, The God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a way that Paul says something that he says in all kinds of different ways throughout his letters. And that is this, if you want to know who God is, if you want to experience the weight, if you want to experience the beauty of God's presence in your life, then look in faith to Jesus. And that's as true now as it was true then. Jesus is how people like you and me come to God and learn to know him. So let me just say this this morning to any of us who may be here, you know, looking for something that is bigger than ourselves. For any of us who may be here this morning wondering if there is more to our existence than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands. There's any of us here this morning who may be hoping that there is something, anything out there that can redeem the brokenness in our lives, that can redeem the brokenness of the world. If that's you, then I'm just telling you, start with Jesus and you will definitely find what you are looking for. So the second thing that flows out of this moment on the road comes from what I think is the strangeness of Jesus' answer to Saul's question. Saul had asked him, who are you, Lord? And Jesus' answer is, I'm Jesus, the one that you're persecuting. And the reason that I think that's strange is because Paul, of course, would have thought for sure that he wasn't persecuting Jesus, but instead persecuting the followers of Jesus. 
he is out to stamp out this little group of people called the church. But Jesus makes it clear to him in that moment, if you mess with them, you're messing with me. Jesus so deeply identifies with his church. He so deeply identifies with people like us. He is so mysteriously tied to people like us that he has no problem at all saying that what happens to us happens to him. And in the New Testament, and Paul is chief among the people who do this, they pile up metaphor after metaphor after metaphor trying to get at this truth of being so deeply tied to Jesus. He says, we're his body. Jesus says he's the vine and we're the branches. We're the building and he's the cornerstone. Over and over again, we're his bride. And another way that Paul puts it in one of his letters many years after this moment is this way. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Our lives are hidden and covered and wrapped up in Christ's life. So listen, I I don't know uh, what kind of suffering it is that you may be going through. I don't know what that thing is that you are facing that's making you feel afraid or maybe even terrified. I don't know the sadness that you're experiencing over a loss or maybe over a broken relationship. I I don't know the specifics of those things, but... If you are a follower of Jesus, I am absolutely certain about this. He is walking through it with you. Because there is no other way that he can be with you and no other way that you can be with him than being inseparably tied together forever. And that means that whatever it is you're facing, you are not alone Part of being a Christian is learning to practice this presence of Jesus with us, believing that it's true and living into the truth of it by the way that we pray, by the choices that we make. And I know, you know, sometimes we are just afraid and sometimes we are just sad and sometimes we are just in the middle of suffering and there's not much else we can do, let alone pray and think about how to act. And when we are in those moments, Jesus is enough then too, because that is his promise and that is his invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So there's this other thing that flows directly out of that moment on the road, and it's really good news for Saul, and it is really good news for people like us. And that's this, that Jesus says to Saul, rise and enter the city, and then you'll be told what to do. Now, I know that sounds mundane. It sounds like he's just getting directions on the next step, but I'm guessing that for Saul, these were some of the sweetest words that he had ever heard in his life because it means that he is not going to be crushed on that road. It means that he has a second chance. It means that he can be redeemed. For probably the first time in his life, he is actually experiencing in his being these words from the Old Testament that he probably knew like the back of his hand. He probably knew them from the time he was a young boy, but now he is feeling the truth of them. Your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens. He was experiencing the grace of God in Jesus, and that grace was going to end up being the animating force, the animating power of his life for the rest of his life. Saul was not 
he was not a good man. He had done a lot of evil. And let me tell you this, Saul wasn't troubled in his conscience that day. He wasn't out trying to figure out how he could be redeemed from all of these evil actions. Saul was a bad guy, and Jesus met him with blinding grace on that road anyway, precisely because he was a bad guy. You know, and we shouldn't think for a minute that that grace was cheap, like it was no big deal to Jesus, because Jesus named the injustice clearly. He said, you are persecuting me. Your hands are stained with the blood of martyrs. God was definitely opposed to what Saul was doing. And in a million years, we will never get to the end of the beauty of this. But here it is for us to look on in wonder. The victim of Saul's crimes subordinates his perfect justice to his unbelievable grace. The victim of Paul's crime subordinates justice that was rightly his to execute. He subordinates it to his grace. He forgives Saul. Before Saul even has the presence of mind to ask for it, before Saul could even begin to imagine that that might even be a possibility for him, as he will put it so vividly years and years later, while we were enemies, while we were enemies, God has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. You know, when Paul writes those letters to his, that, that, those lines to his friends in Rome, he's not just kind of spouting out some esoteric theology. He's just telling the unadorned story of his life. He knows what it is to be an enemy. One second. And to be reconciled the next. It does not make any sense. It is inexplicable. It is inscrutable. Saul has just joined a long line of reprobates and louts and cowards and liars and cheats and fakes and betrayers and deniers for whom the God of all things has happily and gladly and joyfully given up his life. In a million years, we would never write that script, but that's it. That is the true story of the world. And it is the best thing that any of us have ever heard. It means there is hope for me. There's hope for me to be forgiven, not just once a long time ago, but there's hope for me to be forgiven today and tomorrow. And there's hope that I can change. There's hope that I can be renewed. There's hope that I can grow up into the kind of person who loves other people with the same kind of inscrutable, disarming love that Jesus has loved me with. There is hope for people like us. And we get all of that. We get all of that forgiveness, all of that newness, all of that hope when we rest in Jesus by faith. Church, that is not just for beginners. That is for every one of us. Rest in faith in him today. Do it for the first time, do it for the thousandth time, and you will be changed by his grace again. And I can only imagine that this is what Paul is trying to sort through, that this is what he is beginning to try to understand while he is in this house, in this room, for three days on this street called Straight in the town of Damascus, not eating, not drinking, only thinking, only praying. 
Meanwhile, across town, there's this beautiful vision within a vision thing happening with Ananias, right? God comes to Ananias in a vision and he says, hey, go find Saul of Tarsus because Saul of Tarsus has also had a vision that you have come to him and laid your hands on him so that he can regain his sight. Sounds pretty locked down, sounds pretty straightforward to us, but of course to Ananias it makes no sense because he knows who Saul is. And he knows what Saul has done to people like him. And that's when God explains to him that everything has changed and that Saul is not the man that he used to be. And that even though it's going to be a whole whole lot of suffering for him, he's got a new job, which is to carry his name out into the world. And now, now Ananias understands. Not because it's super easy to understand, but because he too had once been the object of Jesus' forgiving grace. Ananias had once been lost and blind, but now he is found, and now he can see. And the story that God just told him sounds an awful lot like his own story. The general outline is pretty much the same. It's the true story of the world into which he has found himself inexplicably and joyfully swept up. If it happened to him... No reason it couldn't happen to a guy like Saul. And so he goes and finds Saul. And the very first words that Saul hears from Christian lips are these. Brother Saul, welcome to the family. And something like scales fell from his eyes. And he could see. And may God make it so that we can see so that we can see the grace of Jesus for people like us, for our good, and for the good of this broken world around us. Let me pray. Father, I am grateful, and to the extent that I am not on a given day, want you to make me grateful and make us as your people here at Covenant grateful that enemies and liars and fakes and cheaters are the kind of people that you work with. That you come to us. That you use whatever means you need to, to, to use to show us the grace of Jesus. And so, Father, I ask that you would do it for us. Some of us for the first time. Some of us, we need to see it again. But please show us the grace of Jesus for people like us so that we can begin to grow up in the kind of people who love as you have loved us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.